When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get into this first story, yes, I've narrated this one before. However, someone recently asked if I could narrate it, and it's been uh, at least a couple of years since I have. So I figure we'll read it again, give it a nice little updated narration. This is The Thing in Chimney 7 by Man and Lysette. There are nine of them in total. Nine massive concrete chimneys sticking out of the landscape like candles on a birthday cake. Up until my last week, the scariest thing about them was the deep booming noise they sometimes produced, which shook the ground with the ferocity of a subwoofer cranked up all the way. They'd spout out one at a time like geysers releasing pressure. I'd walk the perimeter, and there went chimney three, followed by chimney five, and then suddenly chimney eight and nine would go together. That's as weird as it got, before I noticed the thing in Chimney 7. I want to make it clear from the get-go. I have no idea what the chimneys do or why they're here. They're alone in a fenced-off field with no buildings in sight. There are three padlocked doors on opposing ends of the property with roads made only from the flattening effects of tires on grass, with the one nearest to Chimney 7 being overgrown. I think there must be bunkers beneath my feet, although I suppose the doors could also lead to storage sheds. It's hard to tell, and I've been told not to ask. Why are the chimneys there? Is this some sort of nuclear power plant? Are they testing sound cannons? Are they part of an experiment? Pressure valves for a dormant volcano? I don't have answers to those questions. I wish I did, but I'm just a temp. Any time I've tried asking, I've been told the answers were on a need-to-know basis, and all I needed to know was that the chimneys needed patrolling, and that patrolling them was my job. That, and reporting anything unusual. The first few weeks were fine. It took a bit of adjusting, especially to the noise. The first time I heard the boom, I was so scared I nearly pissed myself. I thought something had gone wrong, and that the whole field was about to collapse. I know it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but really, put yourself in my shoes. You're minding your own business when your temp agency calls you in the middle of the night. There's an employer officer... I know it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but really, put yourself in my shoes. You're minding your own business when your temp agency calls in the middle of the night. There's an employer offering twice your hourly rate on a condition that you leave immediately. It's the new moon. So you drive 30 miles out of town in complete darkness. You get there, and there's only one guy there to greet you. He tells you their patrol man never showed up for a shift tonight. Gives you the job, makes you sign a non-disclosure agreement. Tells you to walk around the field, climb the chimneys, radio, and anything strange. That's it. He leaves you there. You start to walk. It's the dead of night. No traffic. Complete and utter silence. And then... Boom. 
It's terrifying. I tried to radio it in, but it took half an hour to find a spot where the connection was strong enough to hear the reply. That's normal. Keep patrolling. That's what they told me. Cold, clinical, straightforward. Each subsequent boom made me less and less nervous, but I've never quite got over the split second of dread they caused. I think it's because they came at random, so there was no way to brace myself. If you approach a garbage bin and you know something's about to jump out at you, your heart rate might quicken a bit when they do, but it won't be that bad. If you know every single garbage bin might have something in it waiting to jump out at you, but you don't know which or when, that spike in your heart rate will be a little higher. But I'm not here to tell you about the booming noises. I'm here to tell you about Chimney 7. Chimney 7 was just like all the others. I'd say it was approximately 9, maybe 10 stories high. There was a graded, and in places rusty, spiral staircase circling around it all the way to the top. I couldn't tell you the exact circumference, but it was wide enough that you'd be able to drop a car into a hole without hitting the sides. It took approximately 6 minutes to climb the stairs, and only 5 to get back down, and that's without resetting. Up until my last week, Chimney 7 was no different from the others. And then came the night where everything changed. It was cold enough that I could see my breath. Halfway through my shift, I grabbed an old baseball cap from the back of my truck to keep my head warm. Nothing special, just a green cap with Fido Dido printed on it. Yeah, I know, showing my age. Although I'd never even seen smoke coming from the chimneys, despite me calling them chimneys, that evening as I approached Chimney 7, I spotted a small wisp of smoke billowing through the air. Since it was my job to report anything unusual, I tried radioing out, but all I heard was static. I couldn't have been farther from the spot my signal normally got through, if I'd been actively trying to avoid it, so I decided that if it was going to make the effort to walk all the way back, I'd better make damn sure I had something to report. I began climbing the steps around Chimney 7, and as I did, I heard a low growl that stopped me dead in my tracks. I closed my eyes and listened, but I couldn't pinpoint the source. I figured it was the sound of the great buckling in the cold, or maybe scraping against the concrete wall, but closer I got to the top, the louder it got. Once I reached the topmost platform, I realized it was coming from the chimney. Something mechanical, I figured, probably malfunctioning to boot. I figured I'd have to look into the chimney, but I was reluctant. See, I'd never tried before, nor had I been instructed to do so. I suppose I could have, but those damn sonic-like booms made me nervous. All those nights in the dark made my imagination run wild. And I had this vivid, unshakable mental image that if I craned my neck and looked into the hole, the chimney would boom, and my head would be blasted straight off my neck. With that fear very much at the forefront of my mind, I gripped the edge of the chimney and shyly poked my head over just enough to be able to see. There was nothing but blackness beyond the few top stories. Blackness and a... Symphony of wind howling through the tunnel with the growl that seemed to cycle from low to high to low again. 
so the chimney were sleeping, snoring giant. No sooner had I popped my head in did I pull it back out. That was enough bravery for one night. I climbed down and hurried to the radio spot giving my report, but while it did sound like the signal went through, I never got a reply. The next night I wasn't as reluctant to look into Chimney 7. All evening I'd kept tabs on which chimneys had been booming and good old 7 hadn't done it once. I figured it was really defective and therefore safe. I climbed the stairs to that same growly tune and then peered inside, pushing my head in farther than the night before. A gust of wind coming from the deep below flung my cap in the air and out of reach. It sprouted its way down the chimney like a helicopter seed and disappeared from sight. I wasn't fond enough of the cap to contact the employer and beg for it back, but I wished I had something to stay warm. I flicked my flashlight on and moved the beam in circles, if only to see what had become of it, but the light couldn't penetrate enough to see the bottom. Oh well. Again, I went back to the radio hotspot, and again, I mentioned the dysfunctional chimney. Still, no reply. Something told me to steer clear of Chimney 7, and I listened to my guts for as long as I could. I'd circle close, but not too close to it, examining it from my vantage points of Chimney 6 and 8. I did this for three nights, until I received my direct deposit paycheck and felt guilty about not doing my job. Before my next shift, I bought a heavy-duty flashlight and then headed straight for Chimney 7. The light reached considerably farther, down to ground level, I think. But even so, I still couldn't see the bottom. What I could see, however, was that about three stories down, just below where my original flashlight stopped working, I discovered scratch marks. I mean, I guess they could have been anything. Even with 20-20 vision, it's hard to tell a scratch from, say, a scratch-shaped graffiti. All I know is that there was something marking up the walls along the circumference. I was already spooked from the scratches, so I don't know if what I saw next was my mind playing tricks on me, but as I panned the halo around, I caught something on the farthest side. It was some sort of long black shape, but as soon as my light hit it, two bright spots reflected back at me and momentarily blinded me. By the time my vision finally cleared and I looked again, there was nothing but concrete below. It took all my strength to finish my shift. I just had to remember the dollar signs that came with the mounting terror. They somehow convinced me I was imagining things. The last night was the worst. All of the chimneys were quiet, and I found myself dreading the silence more than I dreaded the booms. It was raining hard, which might explain why, as I walked by Chimney 7, I couldn't hear the growl I'd become accustomed to. I didn't want to go up, but I couldn't neglect my rounds again. It wouldn't be right. I was careful the whole way. 
and clinging to the guardrails, I navigated the slippery circular staircase. Every step seemed to make the whole thing shake, and I was afraid the rusted metal would break once and for all. I was suddenly very aware of my added weight, with what the water having seeped in my clothes. Fortunately, the structure held, even though its integrity was in question. As I reached the platform at the top, I thought I could breathe a sigh of relief. But something caught my eye while I was trying to catch my breath. The rim of the chimney was broken. Large pieces of concrete littered the platform. I didn't need to see the scratches this time. As I glanced into the chimney, I found deep gouges scratched up the wall all the way to the top, three on each side, with a fourth that seemed to come from a different angle. The cuts were deep and purposeful, like desperate fingers raking a cliffside as a hiker clung for dear life. Whatever had clawed its way up, machine, animal, or... I didn't even want to think of the alternatives. It was now somewhere out there in the dark, and its grip was strong enough to break concrete. I'd had enough. Everything about this damn job had put me on edge, and even though there was a reasonable explanation, like maybe the gouges had been made by a grappling hook or a device to slide down the chimney from the top like the ones windows cleaners use, I was done. D-O-N-E. As much as I wanted to run down the staircase and back to my truck, the rain was still coming down in sheets, and the last thing I needed was to slip and crack my head open. I went slowly and methodically. And suddenly, my worst nightmare came through. The stairs shook violently. I don't mean there was a gust of wind that made them jitter. I mean they were shaking. My stomach dropped to my feet as I imagined whatever had created those deep cuts in the chimney was now climbing up and toward me. The metal screeched as it bent, a sound far more unsettling than growling coming from the chimney. A sound more grounded in reality and in danger. I screamed and hung onto the railing for dear life, and then I felt a pop. Not in my body, not against my body, but through the metal. Pop, pop, pop. The bolts connecting the hinges to the chimney were falling out one by one. Through the heavy rain, I could have sworn I heard a scream like a coyote, and then the staircase went still. I was out of breath. On my knees, arms wrapped around the railing and paralyzed with fear. I could tell the structure was no longer safely fastened to the tower as it was swinging in the wind, but I couldn't see the extent of the damage. It took me a few minutes to gather the courage to stop moving, my white knuckles stiffly releasing my death grip. It should have taken five minutes to get back down, but I spent fifteen. The longest fifteen minutes of my life. I could hear the staircase shifting as I slowly made my way from step to step, hoping it would hold and trying not to shift my weight and throw everything off kilter. I didn't know how many bolts were left or if my weight could cause the others to come out. As I neared the bottom, I saw the final flight had been pulled from the chimney and was now suspended in the air. 
The handrail was wrapped outwards and undulated in parts like a bent twist tie. It was still too high to jump off, so I had to climb down as the stairs rocked like a ship in the storm. Solid ground never felt more solid until I saw something out of the corner of my eye, and then the bottom seemed to drop from under me. Between chimney six and seven, I found a baseball cap. It was shredded, but there was no mistaking the Fido Dido logo on it. It was mine. Around it were long, narrow footprints about the length of my arm with branches stretching out in four different directions like talons. I didn't wait around to see what had left them. It's been two months since that night. I haven't gone back. I keep receiving paychecks, uh, like clockwork. Every two weeks, there's another direct deposit in my bank account. I don't know if it's to buy my silence or... If there's no one left to take me off the payroll... I saw myself on a missing poster by Brandon Faircloth. When I was eight years old, my little brother Dylan went missing. He was four at the time and he'd been out in the fenced-in backyard one minute and gone the next. Everyone went crazy looking for him, of course. Sheriff's office, police, my parents, friends, neighbors... At first, everyone said that we'd find him within the first day, though even at eight I could hear a kind of lie in their voice. There was no sign of a gate being left open or a gap in the fence large enough for him to squeeze through, which meant that someone had snatched him. And unless we got an idea of who or they contacted us, well, were we ever going to get him back? By the third day, the talk had turned from finding him to waiting for a call from whoever took him. That and advertising every way my parents could think of to get his name and picture out to as many people as possible. They pushed the news stations to cover it morning, noon, and night, and for a week or so they did. But as more time passed and news stories came in, the daily reminder to call if you saw him got pushed to the back of the hour, and then it was gone. My parents weren't dumb, and I knew this would happen, of course. They took out TV ads and put stuff out on the internet, though back then the web was not big and popular as it is now, and the television ads were expensive. Fortunately, my mother's business was a local print shop, and she wasted no time printing up thousands of flyers that were posted all over the state. For the next year, that was our routine. Every weekend and some weekdays after work and school, we'd load up and put up flyers in new areas and replace those that time and weather had eaten away. All of them were the same. The words, have you seen me, followed by a recent picture of Dylan and the final line of please call and then my mother's cell phone number. 
We spent so many hours in the car with stacks of those flyers, it felt like Dylan's ghost was haunting us through the whispered rustle of reams of paper, each of them a frozen reminder of Dylan's face staring out at us, asking why we wouldn't help him come home. By the time I was 11, my parents had divorced. My father had hung into the crusade to find their son for the first year, but when year three was getting close, he finally had enough. They argued and fought for a couple of weeks, and then he packed up and moved across town. Within a year, he'd taken up a job in another state, and I mainly saw him at Christmas for a day or two after that. I wanted to hate him, and I guess in my way I did, but not because he'd left he left me behind. My mother had become so focused and passionate about finding Dylan that everything else fell by the wayside, and even after any reasonable hope was lost, she didn't slow down. I know, from the outside, that might sound like a good thing. Like she was being a good and dedicated parent trying to find her child, but it was more than that. I didn't know the analogy then, but looking back when I got older, I likened it to a soldier who can't be comfortable in a life without war after so long on the battlefield. It was like she needed to continue, not just searching for him and putting up flyers, but being seen doing it, talking to people about it, getting their sympathy and compliments and well wishes. The grieving, heroic mother had become her entire persona, and over time, I came to understand she didn't know how to let it go. Still, over time, it let go of her. Life moves on. People forget, and old tragedies are replaced by new ones. I remember how angry my mother was when a little girl went missing my first year of high school. Even when the girl was found, two days later, she would stalk around the house muttering in a foul mood. If you asked her, she'd say it was because it would make people forget about Dylan even more. But I remember feeling uneasy when she'd say that because, well, I could hear the lie in her voice too. As I'd gotten older, I'd done what I could to avoid her ongoing campaign. I'd have to help some weekends still, but for the most part, I made sure that I had enough extracurricular activities to keep me out of her way. I think she actually preferred that. It was easier to play on people's sympathy to get attention when she could tell everyone she didn't have anyone to help keep her searching for her missing son. Still, I could tell something was coming, like pressure building in the atmosphere before a storm. Something was going to break soon. My hope was that she'd reached the point where she'd give up finding Dylan and just live her life again, both for her and for me. Instead, one day she woke me up around four in the morning and told me we had to go. She was clearly distraught, sweating and crying and barely able to talk. I didn't know what was going on. Had she found out something about Dylan? Had something happened to Dad? What was it? She just waved away my questions and told me to come get in the car. 
that we had to go now, that she explain when there was time. I did as I was told, though by this point I was fully awake and growing increasingly terrified. When she got behind the wheel, I half expected her to peel out of the driveway and shoot off at top speed, but she didn't. Instead, she drove slowly and quietly, not even turning on her headlights until we were out of the neighborhood. Mom, what's going on? She glanced over at me, sweat still pouring down her cheeks. It'll be okay. But just wait. We're, we're going to make it right. I turned and stared out to the passing dark. I said, Daddy, is he okay? My mother gave me a harsh laugh. I'm sure he's fine. Living up with his whore girlfriend, I'm sure. She put a hand on her other arm and rubbed it as she gave me a sour look. Don't worry about him. I wanted to respond, but I didn't quite dare. She was more crazy acting than usual, and I didn't even know what might make it worse. So I just sat silent for the next few minutes, wondering more and more where we were going in the middle of the night. When the car suddenly veered off the road into a ditch, I had a moment of unreality where I felt like I was the thing sliding away from the path, not the entire vehicle. Then there was a bang as we hit the bottom of the ditch and began to roll, glass shattering and metal squealing as we tumbled twice and came to rest. My mother was dead before the ambulance got her to the hospital. Not from the accident, surprisingly enough. We weren't badly hurt from that. No, I found out later she'd had a heart attack. That was the reason for the accident and why they called her death as soon as they checked her into the ER. People talked to me about it after I was checked out. A nurse and a highway patrolman originally and then my father when he came to get me and carry me back with him. I always told them what I remembered happening, and they looked at me, puzzled, but say very little else. The prevailing theory was that she'd known she was having a heart attack and was trying to get to the hospital when she wrecked. I asked my father once why, if that was true, we wrecked heading the opposite direction from the closest hospital. He looked uncomfortable, said he didn't know. Maybe she was in pain and confused that it was better not to dwell on it. Healthy or not, I actually took his advice. I tried not to question it, and over the next few years it began to fade for me too. It wasn't until I was 18 that I was forced to face it again. My father sat down and told me that now that I was of age, I had inherited everything my mother had left behind. There was some money, yes, but also the house and everything in it. He told me he'd be happy to help in any way I needed and that there was no rush on it. He'd been making sure taxes and insurance were paid on the house and the businesses and the person running the print shop was interested in buying it if it wanted to sell it to them. It was a lot to take in all at once. I'd asked about the house and business before 
and I knew that they were going to be mine, but I'd never thought much about the details beyond that my father was dealing with it. At first, I just wanted to push it all away. I didn't want the past infecting the new life I had here with new friends and better memories. The more I thought about it, though, I didn't want to hide from it. Hiding from things, being afraid of things, that's how they came to own you. I'd seen enough of that to know I didn't want to spend another minute with my past life owning me. So the next week, I flew back to my old hometown. My dad offered to come, but I told him no, partly because I knew she wouldn't have wanted him there, and mostly because I needed to do this myself. I'd look at everything, spend a couple of days there, and then sell anything I didn't want and never look back. It was hard at first, but by the second day I was tired enough of going through boxes and drawers that the fatigue and monotony drowned out most of the weird sadness I felt. I'd been dreading the attic from the start. It had been my mother's overflowed junk storage, and there had been no telling what all was up there. Running out of reasons not to do it, that afternoon I pulled down the stairs and headed up to see what was waiting for me. It wasn't as bad as I expected. A few small tables and chairs sat piled up in one corner, and there was a couple of moth-eaten rugs and piles of curtains soppily wadded up against one wall, but otherwise there were just a few boxes and a couple of old trunks, sitting crouched in the shadows like a pair of leather-bound coffins. Opening the first one, my stomach dropped. It was Dylan's stuff. Some of his baby clothes, pictures of him, a little Cub Scout outfit he loved to wear, even though he wasn't old enough to be a real scout yet. Sniffling, I shut the trunk back and turned to the other one. For the first time since coming back, I felt tears coming. He'd been a great little boy. Who the fuck would lock this trunk? The second trunk had a small padlock on it, and I had no idea why or where the key was. After looking around for a minute for any sign of a key stashed away nearby, I went downstairs and got a knife and a pair of pliers. I didn't break the lock, but I did pry out the latch, holding it hard enough that it finally popped and skittered away into a darkened corner of the attic. Grasping the trunk lid, I realized I was holding my breath. It would be fine. Just more sad stuff, maybe, but probably just cluttered old junk. What else could it... I froze. I stared into the trunk. That didn't make any sense. The inside wasn't cluttered or messy at all. Instead, it was neatly arranged into six columns of stacked colored paper. Chartreuse number two, my brain whispered to me. I knew the shade because Mom had always told me how important the color was for Dylan's flyers. You had to catch the eye without obscuring the details. The words in the picture were key. The 
The ones in the trunk were much as I remembered, not just the same yellow, but the same words, too. Have you seen me? And please call, followed by my mother's cell phone number. In truth, I could only see one difference between the flyers I'd grown up with and the ones I was staring out now, heart beating out of my chest. It wasn't Dylan's sad ghost face staring up out that trunk. It was mine. I remembered the picture. I'd been getting dressed to go up to an athletic awards banquet for girls basketball when my mother came in with her camera. She wasn't going to the banquet, of course. She had flyers to put up two counties up and was already running late, but before my friend and her mother got there to pick me up, could she just take a couple of pictures? I just looked so pretty and she was so proud of having such a pretty girl. I tried to resist. I was running behind and she was acting weirder than usual and I really just wanted her to go on and go before my normal friend and her normal mother got there. But then she got that tight, almost angry, but not quite angry look she sometimes got and I knew it was better to give in. Putting on my earrings, I followed her outside and posed next to the backyard fence. Once she snapped a few pictures, she seemed satisfied and headed out the door. I thought it was all strange at the time, but then everything was strange back then. And to be fair, I didn't really have that long to ponder it, because the following week she woke me in the dead of night and said I had to come with her. That we were going to make it right. I understood now what she'd meant and what she'd meant to do. Seeing that picture of a past me, staring up from a week before I went out with her into the dark, I wish I could tell her not to stand there, but to run, to run away from the thing that she was living with. Because if she stayed, one night she'd be drug out into the black and only one of them would be coming back. I closed the lid on the trunk with a shaky hand. At least it was me. And that was true. But somehow that didn't make any of it better. I locked the front door without taking anything with me other than what I brought. There was nothing here I wanted to ever see or touch again, though I was old enough by then to understand it wasn't a one-way street. You don't just... Own your memories and your truths. They own you too. And even when you try to forget them, leave them behind, they never stop searching for you. All you can do is be ready. And when they find you, turn away from the beckoning hand, reaching out of the dark. Thank you.